Well, good evening once again, and uh, it's a joy just to be able to come and share something from uh, God's Word with you. Um, we're going to uh, continue on, as has already been said, uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, amongst the seven churches of Asia Minor, and uh, we're going to continue on to look at the church in Pergamum. But let's just pray before we begin to do so. Heavenly Father, again, we come uh, to you uh, to seek uh, your help uh, as we open up your word. We pray, Lord, that you will come by your spirit and lead us uh, and uh, show us uh, what we need to hear and need to learn from these words. Uh, Be with us now, we ask, and let your name be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the church in in Pergamum um, would have been affected by the uh, ministry of Paul the Apostle. Um, Clearly, he um, visited Ephesus for probably around about three months, and it's likely that Pergamum would have been affected by that and that ministry. And uh, Paul um, passed through the city of Mycenae, which is uh, in the north part of Asia Minor, Uh, You'll read about that in Acts chapter 16. And so clearly uh, his ministry would have been at work uh, in the churches uh, in that area and Pergamum likely uh, would have been affected by that. Uh, Pergamum is the modern day city of Bergama, I understand, in Turkey. And at that time, at the time of uh, the writing of the book of Revelation, um, it was engulfed in paganism. Um, Pergamum was considered by many to be Asia's greatest city. And uh, by the time that the um, writing that we're reading was written, it had been Asia's capital for probably about 250 years. So it was a well-known city and a well-loved city. It was a seat of learning. Uh, There was a library there with 200,000 books in it. And uh, that doesn't make it a learning city, but if people did read these books, surely they would read and learn something. Um, It was in the city of Pergamum that parchment was invented. And I understand that the name Pergamum um, has something to do uh, with that uh, product um, uh, in its own language. Um, It was probably kind of like the Silicon Valley of the day. That was a a very modern way of communication then. And uh, so parchment would have been used widely um, and wealth would have come to the city as a result of that. So it had riches, it had royalty, it had learning. But yet in this particular um, uh, portion of Scripture, it is described as Satan's throne. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? You'll find uh, Jesus uh, amongst the poor, but often you'll find Satan at work amongst the rich and powerful to try and destroy the work of God and to destroy the church. Um, Pergamum was known as the city of temples, and um, it was a church, the church in Pergamum that that the Apostle John is, is bringing the letter to from Jesus Um, had been challenged and compromised uh, with the world at that time. And so there were some many challenges. It's so very different from 
uh, Smyrna that we looked at this morning where Christ had no criticism to bring at all, there are uh, differences here, as you will find out just in a minute. And so we'll begin to read uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, which has been read for us, um, to the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. And uh, with the level of evil that was in operation within the city of Pergamum, um, Jesus made it very clear to his people and to the church there that he was ready to battle with his people against the satanic activities uh, in the city. And that wasn't just uh, becoming rich. There's nothing in itself wrong with becoming rich. But the way that Satan was using uh, the, the people in the city to try and destroy the church. And so he said that he was bringing a double-edged sword, not just any old sword, but a double-edged sword uh, that he would use uh, to mete out spiritual warfare on behalf of the church. And so that's very uh, powerful language that as we see that, we see uh, Jesus battling on behalf and with the church at that time. Verse uh, 12, verse 13 goes on to say, I know where you live. And again, we just come, stop there for a moment to recognize that Jesus knows the detail of our lives. Uh, Jesus doesn't look at the world as a whole necessarily. He looks at us. He looks at the church. He looks at the individual as well. But here he's speaking to the church and he said, I know where you live. I know detail about your life where Satan has his throne. You know, sometimes we can be faced with very challenging situations. And it's comforting to know that Jesus knows the detail of that that we're going through. It might be that we have a tough family situation or background, and we struggle to live as a Christian within that family setting. Jesus says, I know where you live. It may be that we have a problem at work where uh, now that people know that we're a Christian, they give us a tough time as a result of that. And Jesus is saying, I know where you live. It may be our neighborhood. It may be the school that we attend. All of these things that he knows, he is aware, fully aware of the situation in which we find ourselves. Here in Dundee and St. Peter's, we sit in the west end of the city, and I suppose that can be seen as a good thing, but there are many challenges in this part of the city as well. Many issues. We just don't have to go far from this building to find serious social problems going on within our own city. And Jesus is saying to us, I know where you live, and I'm with you in that. And so here we are uh, with Jesus very aware of the situation. For them in Pergamum, it was a city where Satan had his throne. Yet, he says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. And that is wonderful. You did not renounce your faith in me. You see, the pressure of this satanic culture 
was huge uh, on these people. There was a determination to eradicate uh, the Christians. I understand in India that's part of the, the, the government's promise is that they want to uh, eradicate Christianity by 2025. And so there are pressures now upon the believers in India. But here we have Satan having his throne. And I suspect that this particular use of the word Satan is speaking about Zeus. Uh, Zeus um, is the thunder god known to these people um, uh, in ancient Greek religion. Um, he rules uh, as king of the gods of Mount Olympus. His, his uh, equivalent is the Roman uh, god Jupiter. And uh, so here is this um, uh, person or personage that is being identified here as Satan. And uh, there is a kind of play of, on words going on, which we'll mention just in a minute. But those believers had um, been pressurized into renouncing their faith. And Jesus is saying to them in this letter, you've had all this pressure, you've had Satan on your backs, and yet you remain true to my name. What an encouragement that must have been to these people. And yet you did not renounce your faith in me. What a wonderful thing to be able to say about any church. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Um, Jesus is described previously in this portion of Scripture. Uh, I think it's in chapter 1, um, verse 5, where Jesus is described as the faithful witness. And here is Jesus referring to Antipas, who was one of the, the brethren there, as a faithful witness. And he talks about faithfulness of going all the way, even through to death. And I suspect that Jesus identified Antipas because um, it, it tells us here he was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What uh, an honor to be referred to in the same uh, language as our Lord Jesus Christ is referred uh, here. And so um, Antipas was, was a, a wonderful um, servant of the Lord. He was ordained by the Apostle John, and he was martyred by Nero. And Nero was a, a brutal um, Roman emperor. Um, he blamed the Christians for everything that went wrong uh, where he was. And he used to light up his garden parties by dipping Christians in oil and, and tar and tying them up onto branches of trees uh, so that they would uh, light up as he lit up their bodies. They would burn for hours um, to light up his garden party. Such was the brutality uh, and mentality of this man. He was the one who put Antipas to death. He was put to death for casting out demons worshipped by the local people. And so the, the, the devil, Satan, does not like his territory being invaded. And so as we approach that and understand that, we um, need to be aware that we are challenging demonic powers sometimes, uh, powers in high places, as we continue to worship God and serve God, seeing people freed from the ways of this world 
and coming into the kingdom of God. And so um, Antipas was, was roasted to death on a, a, a brazen altar, the shape of a bull, and uh, it was a horrible way to die. And yet uh, he was identified as a faithful witness by Jesus himself. And uh, so at that time, during his life, people were asked to sacrifice to the emperor. And so that's where the play on words comes from. Zeus equals Satan. Um, and there is this uh, god that was called Escalapius, uh, who uh, refers to a snake. Um, and so there's a play on words going on there as the Apostle John writes this down uh, for us to understand. And so what he's saying is Zeus and Satan are alike um, when, they, um, when you see them written down like that. And so it's wonderful also to, to be aware that later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it tells us that that great dragon, that great serpent was thrown down, um, and uh, who is called the devil, who's called Satan, the deceiver of the, world, the whole world. And so he eventually comes to an end, uh, the enemy using uh, this system to, to brutalize uh, the people of God. And so um, they live in a horrible city. They were called upon to renounce their faith or die. And uh, many of them went to their death with the, the, the song of, of Jesus on their lips, which is uh, a wonderful encouragement uh, to us as believers that we, we sometimes find ourselves under pressure and in difficulties. And many of my brothers and sisters and friends across the world are in that same kind of situation. And yet, they are prepared to stand for Christ uh, in it all. And so the world system wants us to renounce our faith, uh, perhaps not in the same way, um, but certainly the intention is the same. The world or the devil wants to remove the church's power, but of course our power is not in our own strength, but our power is in Christ Jesus, and he is the one who empowers us to live for him. Uh, in these challenging and difficult days. And so we move on to verse 14. Um, after these words of encouragement, the identity, identifying of um, uh, the good things that had gone on uh, in the church here, we find Jesus identifying some challenges as well. And he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And uh, so you, you have this situation where each church that Jesus visits in this letter are given a slightly different uh, report. Uh, the scan, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, the, the x-ray, uh, produces a different thing. You know, we can look very smart and look very good, and we can turn up to church with our big Bible and our smart suit or whatever. Uh, but as, as the Lord tells us in 1 Samuel 16, I think it is, where Samuel visits uh, Jesse and is about to anoint David as king, he says, the Lord does not look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. So he can x-ray us 
and he can see what's going on uh, in our hearts. And so Ephesus, he says, I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. Smyrna, he raised no uh, challenge against them at all. Pergamum, he says, I have a few things against you. And he identifies two of them here. You hold to the teaching of Balaam. And uh, that was clearly idolatry, uh, idol worship, and sexual immorality. Um, And in some ways quite similar to the world in which we are now living. Um, Idolatry is a huge issue uh, in our world. And of course, sexual immorality, we see it everywhere uh, we look. And he says also, you you, you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And they had some, some similar teaching uh, to that of Balaam, but they were also what was called a control cult. They wanted to control people and force people uh, to live in a certain way. And again, that's another uh, issue that we see rising up in our culture at this moment in time, uh, to control people to do and say and believe certain things. And of course, as someone once said, a cult uh, is easy to get into, but difficult to get out of. <laughs> and a church should be difficult to get into and easy to get out of if you want to go. Um, and so a cult here, uh, the, the Nicolaitans, uh, were a real problem in the area. And so many, many people held to these, uh, who were in that church in Pergamum, held to these teachings, and it was a problem to the church. And Jesus identifies that. Uh, but yet, it would appear that they were worth, worthy of, of reaching and holding on to because uh, he says, I want to fight for you and bring my two-edged sword uh, to bear uh, on the, the enemies of the church or the, the people of Satan, as it were. And so um, today we have challenges. We, we don't live in the same culture as they do. But the identity of the devil is the same. Satan is the same person. The Bible tells us he roams back and forward, seeking whom he can devour. And so he will find ways, if he can, to devour uh, people and cause trouble to the church. And uh, as I mentioned this morning, liberal Christianity is one of these things where the church has lost its power um, and has moved on to a different form of, of worship altogether. There is the prosperity gospel, which throughout the areas of the world that I visit is a huge problem in the church, uh, where uh, people believe that um, you can pay um, offerings to be able to get a blessing from God. Uh, But of course, it's the other way around, isn't it? We we give our offerings because we have already been so blessed by God, and we want to uh, uh, support the church and bless the Lord again. You have the emergent church, which is uh, problematic throughout uh, much of the Western world at the moment. And so we we see um, all sorts of things arising at this moment in time, which are are, are similar in many ways uh, to what was going on in the book of Revelation. And uh, so there are are, are teachings um, that we need to remember that will cause a problem in the church, and we cannot allow them to gain access and gain entry into the church. 
And we need to be very, very careful uh, that we identify these things and, and say what they are. And if they do not comply with the Word of God, then we must reject them uh, wholeheartedly. And so he says, we have these few things against you. And we must again be aware that we too can be, um, we, we can focus on these things and have the Lord turn against us and remove our lampstand, as, as was told in the early parts of this particular uh, few chapters. And so we need to turn uh, to the Lord again. And in verse 16, he tells us how to do that. He says, repent, therefore. Repent, therefore. And when, when, when confronting sin, the only answer is to repent. And God gives us repentance as a gift. We need to turn away from our old ways. And repentance means really just to turn around. One way we're going this way, doing our thing. The next day we've turned around at the command of Jesus Christ to follow him and to, to turn after him. He says, if you don't, he said, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's saying that if we don't deal with these issues that are in the church, then Jesus is going to come and fight against them. Now, I don't know about you, but I was just thinking about this, and at any time when Jesus meets those whom he wishes to bless, and he f comes face to face uh, with them, um, then if we discover that they, they either collapse or they, they have huge problems because even in our physical frame, people who want to go after God, we can't cope with the presence of Jesus Christ. We see it uh, where Saul was blinded. Um, he had been going around trying to kill Christians. And he came and met Jesus on the road um, and he totally collapsed on his face and was blinded for a period of time. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we follow. And we find it with the Apostle John as well, as we just read a few minutes ago, that when he met with Jesus in a vision, it was so powerful, the presence of Jesus, that he collapsed and fainted at his feet in that vision. We see it in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 where Isaiah um, meets the Lord and his train fills the temple and so on. And he is just blown away by this presence of God. And he said, look, I'm undone. I'm a sinful man. Woe is me. And so when Jesus comes as a friend, we can't cope. But if he comes as an enemy, we're in real trouble. And so, sin is, it requires us to repent of our sin and turn away from that because sin burns up in the presence of holiness. And we can only be scared and fearful of that and live in the fear of the living God. And so he's going to come and fight 
against those who stand in his way for the sake of the church of Christ. Then it goes on in verse 17, and we're coming uh, close to the end of the chapter here, or close to the end of the, this particular church. And it says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to the churches. Um, we've been given, as Christian believers, we've been given ears to hear. Sometimes we can block them up. Sometimes we can have so much other noise going on in the atmosphere around us that we don't hear what God is saying. But we can capture the clear voice of the Lord as He speaks to us through the reading, through the preaching, through the study of His Word. We can hear God speak to us very clearly. And we can hear God in other ways, I believe, as well, that God can speak to us and and inform us of things. Elijah uh, said to Ahab, Um, In 1 Kings 18, he said, get up. I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Something's about to change here, and we can sense that God is speaking to us about change coming, and he will speak to us through his word to bring us into the truth of all of that. And so, we need to hear. We need to be hearers uh, of the word. Hear what God is saying via his spirit to us in the churches. And that's so important to us. Then finally it goes on to say, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now again, he's referring back to the Old Testament, the people of, of the Jews going through uh, the wilderness, and God provided them with manna every day. And uh, of course, Christ is described to us in the Scripture as being the bread of life. He is our daily manna. You know, we would sit down for our breakfast, we would sit down for our lunch, our dinner, etc., uh, and we would eat to, to um, give strength to our own physical bodies. And yet this manna that Jesus is, the bread of life, uh, He is there for our spiritual food. And we need to hear what He has to say to us. We need to feed uh, on Him and receive from Him every day. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to hear God speak to us through His Word uh, as we take time to, to read it and so on. And so He is that, that portion, if you like, uh, that we've been given. But it also says there um, in verse uh, 17, I will also give that person a white stone. Well, you say, well, what on earth is that? What's a white stone all about? Why do we have to have a white stone? What is it referring to? Well, again, it's specific to Pergamum because Pergamum was a center of the ancient games, the Olympics. And uh, during that time, if someone won a race or the winner of any of the the activities, um, they were given a white stone And the white stone had the person's name written on it. And they would use that stone to gain access into the victor's feast. And so a great feast after the games were all over, a great feast was prepared, and only those with a white stone with their particular name on it were gained access in uh, to that victor's feast. And so we too... Uh, Jesus is saying here, we too have been given 
the equivalent of a white stone. Those who, who receive Christ, those who live for him, those who become uh, part of the church that stands firm in the difficulties of the age will be given one day a white stone with our name written on it. And it will give us access into the victor's feast. One day there's going to be a wedding feast. The wedding supper of the Lamb is described as even in the book of Revelation. And we will be given access if we have that white stone, if we stand firm and we receive everything that Christ has uh, for us. And we will have our name written on that, known only to the one who receives it. And so it's wonderful uh, what God is speaking to us through this book of Revelation in the churches, the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor. Uh, well, what have we learned from it? And just to close, what have we learned from it? Well, we know that uh, this city um, had um, so many books, but books don't necessarily provide us with godliness and holiness. And in fact, in their case, it was the opposite that took place. We've learned that there is one who fights on our behalf. The Lord Jesus not only fights against the enemy, but he fights for us in the fight that we are called to, to be involved in. The church will always be faced with false teachings which try to dilute uh, and draw God's people away from the truth. We must resist them in the name of Jesus and he will fight for us. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places in the heavenly realms, we're told in the book of Ephesians. We can hear by God's Spirit who leads us into all truth. And we're not talking about hearing um, prophecies because we've had too much cheese uh, before we went to bed uh, and dreams and so on. All of these are at God's permit. But we hear God's Spirit speak to us through His Word. He gives us the unction of His Spirit to know uh, what the signs of the times are. And uh, we, we become part, that Word becomes part of us. It's like a kind of DNA um, that becomes part of us. And uh, it answers lots and lots of questions of our life and gives us uh, something to, to walk by um, as a lamp and a light to our feet. We've learned that turning to Christ in repentance is the only answer to sin. And we've learned that no matter how strong a church is, for example, the church in Scotland used to be called the land of the book. No matter how, long, how, how strong a church is, it will collapse if it does not remain in Christ, avoiding the, the kind of bird traps and stumbling blocks set by the world, by the devil. And we have been called to be salt and light in a dark and rotten world. We need to remain steadfast in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we 
give you grateful thanks for your word. We thank you that it is illuminating to us as we read it. We thank you that it's important for us that we, we feed from it, receiving you as we feed. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us, that we might read it, that we might bind it upon our hearts, and that we might walk with you. So help us as we learn from these churches. Help us to live for you in this church, in Scotland, in Dundee, in St. Peter's. Be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.